Hello, friends. Welcome to the Mostly Harmless Podcast. I'm your host, Dammit Damien. Uh, today, our very special guest is Mr. Frank Turner. Frank Turner, of course, is from Europe. He is the uh, Epitaph Records recording artist responsible for the albums Love Song and Ire, Poetry of the Deed, and England Keep My Bones. You can see Mr. Frank Turner right now on the never-ending Social Distortion North American Tour. It seems like those guys have been touring for about five years now on this current record. But uh, Frank Turner, this is his second stretch on this uh, Social D tour. I was lucky enough to catch up with him in their New Mexico Albuquerque stop. And uh, we chat a little bit about life, the universe, and everything, as this show usually happens to do. I'd like to welcome all new guests. Uh, normally, I kind of have like some kind of script that we sit down and I kind of talk about how much this artist means to me and kind of how they help shape things. I mean, this is only episode six, so everybody right now up to this point has been somebody that's kind of really, really impacted me in my life and my I guess career, whatever. Uh, right now, I'm the uh, bartending manager at uh, Black Sheep in Colorado Springs. I used to run the Triple Nickel. I used to run a zine called Most of Harmless Magazine. Now I'm just average Joe bartending at this uh, music venue, and I'm running a little podcast on the side. Uh, normally, I say normally I have a script written ready. Uh, not this week. I've been I spent the whole weekend uh, up north. I spent uh, a lot of Large chunk of time on a Saturday up in Fort Collins. I picked up some T-shirts, mostly harmless T-shirts that uh, Mr. Chad Price from Drag the River and All made for me. Now, Chad is the most current All lead singer. All, of course, is the Descendant side project whenever Milo is out of town and doing his uh, science stuff, whatever. Um, but in Chad's spare time, when he's not touring with Drag the River as their you know co-vocalist, he does screen printing. And uh, I got him to make some, make up some Mostly Harmless t-shirts. Went up there, picked those up. Fan-fucking-tastic. You can find them on the uh, website, mostlyharmlesspodcast.com, in our store. Highly recommend you buy them. I mean, they were made by the guy who makes all of the Descendants merchandise. Who wouldn't want something made by that guy? And it's way cheaper than the Descendants merchandise, so it's kind of like getting a piece of the Descendants merchandise without getting the Descendants merchandise. Uh, so, yeah, I meant to come home way earlier today and record, like, type up a little script write and record it but that didn't happen uh last night i was fortunate enough to catch mr chuck reagan playing a super intimate quiet house show party art gallery opening at marion street tattoo and i say it's a house show because marion street tattoo of course is an old uh, it's an old house turned into a tattoo shop in uh kind of downtown denver colorado uh it's curated by miss emily francis she used to be the Hot Water Music tour manager. She's tour managed for Tool. Uh, I think she said Pussifer, Planes Mistaken for Stars, of course, Hot Water. Um, and goddamn, she told me so many damn different bands and stories. Wonderful, amazing woman. Um, very proud to have met her and call her a friend. Fell in love instantly. Uh, kindred spirit after my own kind. Uh, wonderful person. Throws together some wonderful art shows there in Denver. And fortunately enough, I got invited to this one with Mr. Chuck Reagan opening it. Now, if you're a fan of this podcast, Chuck Reagan was the first interview we did. Uh, just the opportunity of interviewing Chuck Reagan and putting it up online is what kickstarted this whole thing. It was, it was kind of like coming full circle. I'm picking up these T-shirts. I wouldn't have had these T-shirts made if it hadn't been for Chuck Reagan. And so it was very important for me to give these to him. Spent the night, watched the watch Chuck Reagan play, blew me away. All the animosity, all the stress, all the anger, all the issues I'd been going through in the last couple of weeks melted away when Chuck hit that first chord. 
God damn, I fucking love that guy. Uh, his music blows me out of the water every time. And it was just really wonderful watching him play in this little itty-bitty room to about, I don't know, probably 50 people, 50, 60, maybe 100. I don't know. I'm really bad with guessing numbers like that. Uh, but there, there was Chuck just playing away, playing his heart out for this small little room of people. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's why we do this thing. It's, it, it affects us. It hits us. And it, it shocks us to the core. Uh, I gave Chuck a T-shirt. Very modest, very humble about it. Uh, at first, I was like, hey, you remember me? And he's like, yeah, man, I remember. Yeah, what's up? Of course, he didn't. <laughs> yeah, they like, I recognize your face. I have no idea where you're from. I give him the T-shirt, and he's like, oh, man, this is cool. Thanks, man. Thanks. This is cool. It's got a little koala bear with dynamite. Man, that's cool. I'm like, yeah, and I tell him a little story that I just told you guys. Kind of like, only it was a lot less finesse if that if you can believe such a thing and it's just me rambling going hey man i wouldn't have done this if it wasn't for you and you know that interview we did the ramada in was kind of and he's like oh i remember you now of course uh anyway like i say wonderful guy uh i'd like to thank him very much for like unintentionally kickstarting this podcast um so I won't ramble too much more about that. So I spent the entire night, and I spent last night in Denver, and I spent today in Denver hanging out with my old roommate. And I show up here. It's 9 o'clock. I've been day drinking. I'm tired of shit. It's like I can't write a script. So we're just free balling this. I'm just going to ramble a little bit longer. Uh, so I found myself in, uh, you know, I say a bartender at the uh, Black Sheep of Colorado Springs, Colorado, owned by Soda Jerk Presents. They own the Marquee and the Summit in Denver. And uh, I found myself with an extra three hundred dollars in my pocket. Now, I've been trying to go down to Al- Albuquerque or El Paso to interview Frank Turner for a couple weeks now. I've been emailing the Epitaph Press people over and over and over again. Never got a single uh, response. Uh, I emailed Mr. Casey Cress, uh, Frank Turner's wonderful, kind tour manager. Uh, Casey also tour manages for Lagwagon. He also t- tour manages for Chuck Reagan and Hot Water Music when he when he can. And I emailed Frank. Turner's, uh, you know, like I say, I emailed Casey, and within five minutes, I got a done deal. Done. Come on down. And this is after weeks of emailing the Epitaph people and not getting a single response. And I'm not talking shit. I mean, I know this is a little podcast, and uh, most people don't even understand what a podcast is. My mother doesn't even understand what it is. She's never listened to this. So, of course, I'm probably doing something wrong, but, you know, whatever. Gotta love mothers. They don't understand technology, right? Technology, what's it good for? But, um, so a lot of my friends were going like, "Why?" Are, I have a I have a sh- beat up little uh, 1991 Honda Civic station wagon. The back window's broken out. Uh, the thing looks like it's gonna fall apart any day. I didn't trust it to drive down to Albuquerque, so I went and rented a car and drove down to Albuquerque. It's a good six hour drive. My friends are like, "Why are you gonna rent a car and drive to Albuquerque?" And so I figured this is this would be a good point to t- talk about it. I don't know how much I'm gonna talk about it here on this little show over the course of however many episodes we end up doing but uh, uh my baby sister passed away about two and a half years ago uh she was 19 years old and she had some rare genetic d- defects uh, for lack of better terms basically her lungs collapsed and died and uh her heart wasn't very far behind it uh we pulled the plug we were i was in the hospital room and i got to watch the life drain out of her body this is not about that uh when you watch somebody die in front of your eyes it, you kind of take a cord of you ask yourself the question, what the fuck am I doing with this life? And it had already been something on my mind trying to figure out what the hell we're doing, how we're doing it. And it's like, life's too short. 
you never know when you're going to die. I could, after recording and uploading this, I could pass away tomorrow morning on my way to the day job. Um, or it could be 10, 10 days, 10 years, whatever. Who knows? Uh, I don't want to look back in 10 years from now and regret not doing the things I wanted to do. And one of the things I wanted to do was interview Frank Turner. Uh, I have a lot of friends who are like, will pass on doing stuff because it's like, oh, I got to work tomorrow. So I got to go home and go to sleep early. And one, one of the things I like, I, I hate that because in 10 years from now, you're not going to look back and remember the night that you went to bed early and got a good night of sleep and had a great day at work. Instead, you're, you're going to remember the shitty day at work where you're so fucking hungover you can barely function. But you're going to remember that fucking blast you had that night at whatever show. And even if that show sucked, you're going to remember how awful that night was. And that's that's really what we're living for. So I jumped in the car. I rented a car, drove down to Albuquerque, and I interviewed Frank Turner. Um, he kind of ignites that, that feeling of, I won't sit down, I won't shut up. And most of all, I will not grow old. And that's, that's, that's it. That's the reason why we, I do, I'm doing the show. And that's why I do everything I do is because we could die tomorrow. And I don't want to look back in on my deathbed and regret not doing the things, you know, we didn't do so i drove down to albuquerque new mexico and did this little interview with mr frank turner that was a wonderful bizarre uh thing albuquerque is a weird 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 little town i ended up staying with some strange people i did not know uh, the roommate came home at 3 a.m and asked me if i wanted to do some drug you know i'm passed out on their couch uh people i just met literally an hour before they're friends of friends and they're like their roommate comes home. I guess he's a cook or something. I have no idea. Woke me up. Hey, buddy, you want to do some drugs with me? Do some coke. Smoke some pot. Drink some Jameson. And here I am passed out. And this dude wakes me up. I did not sleep very well after that. But that's the thing. Is like in 10 years from now, I'm going to look back and be like, fuck yeah, I went and did that thing. And I've got this interview to show for it. I'm not going to keep rambling too much more. Uh, so instead, we're going to go ahead and we're going to play... Uh, a little song called Photosynthesis. I just quoted it a couple of minutes ago. It's got the lyrics, I won't sit down, I won't shut up, and most of all, I will not grow old. Uh, it's one of those songs that I, I kind of talk about in today's interview with Frank, where I talk about how much he means to me and like uh, kind of the inspiration he's had on me. So uh, the one thing I want to leave you before I uh, we get into the song in this interview is like live for now, no regrets, yada, yada, yada. I don't even know. Just... Put what you want to do first because you might die tomorrow and I might die tomorrow and I'm not going to regret. I'm not going to regret. I mean, that's that's pretty much it. <laughs> so sorry to keep rambling. Live life now. Uh, this is Photosynthesis off Love Song and Iron. This is Frank Turner. And we're going to go straight on the interview. Thanks for listening.
sitting on the uh, tour bus with Mr. Frank Turner. Um, he's in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I drove down here today to interview him, and he was kind enough to sit down and chat with me about an hour before the show. So we're going to make this quick. But uh, so, first time I ever found your music mm-hmm. it was on accident. Okay. And I like to tell the story it found me. Okay. Uh, I downloaded a fake problem 7-inch. Right. And it came with a free Frank Turner track. Huh. But I did not know that. I imported it into my iTunes, and there your track set for God knows how long. And then one day I'm like, who the fuck is this Frank Turner guy? What is he doing in my iTunes? <laughs> and I pressed play, and I went, this is fucking awesome. 
Awesome. But that was before Love Song or any of that stuff had come out in the States. So I looked you up on my MySpace. That's how long this has been because MySpace was still king. And uh, found out you were from Europe and mm-hmm. England, more specifically. <laughs> and uh, kind of tracked down uh, Sleepers for the Week. I, I kind of illegally downloaded some stuff. But I made up for it. I bought a whole bunch. Right, okay. Since Good then. Good Yeah, you know. Um, so, and then uh, when I was 28 years old, it was my 28th birthday, I was riding my bike home from work because I didn't have a car, uh-huh. didn't have a license even. And it was my 28th birthday, and I decided to listen to Love uh, Love Songs and Ire. Love Iron Song. Yeah. Love it, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I uh, got home, and I went... I, uh, I'm good friends with John Snodgrass, the Dragon mm-hmm. River Boys, yeah, yeah. and I've been bugging them for years to take me on tour, and they were like, yeah, maybe maybe later, buddy. Maybe <laughs> later. That's a great Snodgrass impression. Thank you. I can do Chad pretty well, too, but uh, we'll do that later. But, uh, yeah, so I, I got home, and I went, you know what? The, the, the Spring Turner guy's right about something. Like, life's too short. Life's too young, whatever. What the fuck am I doing working this bullshit job when all I want to do is travel? So I sent you a nice little email saying, hey, if you're ever in the States and need a tour manager, I'll be that guy. Did I write back? You did. And you, okay. said, and you said something along the lines of, hey, man, thank you so much. Like, this is great. Love it. Uh, this guy's normally my tour manager, but if I ever need anybody, you're the guy. And usually every time I run into you, I tell you that story. And you're like, I remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, maybe, I do. Indeed, I do. Maybe you don't. I do. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, I do. You know, it, well, it's particularly... The, the only kind of people who got in touch with me from the USA, every single time anybody from America knew anything about me, it totally blew my mind. Cause <sighs> particularly in the times I, know, I hadn't even been out here yeah. or played any shows I, or anything. I think you had done like one tour with fake problems. Yeah, I yeah, I did. I did that. I did that really early run around uh, Florida where we played like house shows and stuff. Oh, it was yeah. A, yeah, it was a great time. Yeah. So I, I, I just I, I still have the email saved and I'm like. Excellent. That's good. And well, I, I love that every time I run into, you vaguely kind of sort of remember it. Yeah. So. I, I, you know, it's I'm I'm just happy that I that I write back. I try and write back to everybody, yeah. but it mortifies me the idea that I'm I might have. <laughs> I wake up in the middle of the night thinking I might have missed somebody somewhere. <laughs> well, I, I've got another from a year later where, uh, I think it was about the time you went to Colorado to record Buddies. It might have been two years uh-huh. later, and I, I, John had posted somewhere that you were coming to town, and I went. I emailed you personally and went, well, you're going to be here the same week as my birthday. We played my birthday party, and then you wrote me back, and you were like, I just got booked on all these big uh, August European festivals, so yeah, I'm not yeah. going to be in Colorado until next week and won't have time. But sorry, thank you. Yeah, Good actually, time. that was the yeah that was the time I was supposed to stay in Colorado longer than than, than yeah. I ended up doing. Yeah. But you still got a got a pretty good buddies record out of it. Yeah, which and did you you know we did another song at New Year? Did yeah, you hear that? I got yeah, it. Yeah, that was fun. That, yeah. <laughs> that was a good time. So 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 my first my first like real thing for you is uh you know um I talked to Chuck Reagan too about this because. Uh, Chuck Chuck's music's had a big effect on me, but hmm. who who was there for you to kind of kickstart it? Thing was there any like music like that made you go? I got to get up and got to I got to fucking do this. Uh yeah, I mean kind of. I mean the first band I ever sort of like fell in love with hard was Iron Maiden when I was like ten years old, and because my parents aren't into kind of modern music if you like, yeah. and so I'd never really heard any kind of rock and roll of any kind really. And then a friend of mine's older brother played me some some Maiden, and kind of tore my mind apart. <laughs> You know, um, because prior to that, the only kind of music I knew was classical music, really, and uh, and so, so I mean that was a big one for me. I mean, you know, I I, certainly, I had a Nirvana moment like a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely had a Black Flag moment um, when when that was going on. But I mean, more, I think more 
more specifically, I got involved in kind of the underground hardcore scene in London in kind of sort of 97, 98, around then, and there was just those household name records, it was run by a guy called Lil, it's still running actually now, and there were bands like Knuckle Dust and Imbalance, bands who never really went anywhere outside of the UK, but to me, they were the titans, do you know what I mean? They, mm-hmm. were, they were the punk bands that were just like gods to me, and, and yet, and yet, and this thing that was important is that they weren't untouchable and they weren't aloof or anything, you know, they'd be running their own merch tables and, you know, we'd end up getting lists to shows off them and all the rest of it, and, and it was that kind of like, being both being awesome and completely touchable, you know that 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 sort of flavor of punk kind of iconoclasm was really really important yeah. to me, and I still think that, in, or at least I try to make that inform most of what I do now. Yeah. Well, I, I just uh, the last, well, not the last time I saw last time I saw you, you were very sick in Denver, but the time before that mm-hmm. was a uh, social distortion in Lucero. Yes, there you were, fucking hunt, however many thousand people selling your own merchandise mm-hmm. hanging out taking that photos with everybody well. yeah, yeah. no it's great I love it yeah, um, I did fall in love with your merch girl this last time in uh, Sarah? Denver yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, she's a very lovable person yeah. a lot of people in love with Sarah I, uh, I remember texting your tour manager Casey going Casey hook me up just dude she's got a boyfriend I'm like is he in America because I am anyway so <laughs> uh, I, I talked her ear off about Doctor Who normally I talk to any Britain, British person about Doctor Who for as much and long as I can so uh-huh. Uh, we won't do that right now, though. Um, so, yeah, so what about Iron Maiden? Kind of grabbed you at that young age? I don't know. It was just I could, it hadn't occurred to me prior to that that music could could be like rock and rollers. And I think I don't think without wanting to do down Iron Maiden, who are a band that I still totally adore. Mm-hmm. But I think that you know, if I'd heard Rolling Stones, that probably would have had a similar effect. You right. know, it was just prior to that, music was a thing that because my mom's a, a primary school music teacher, so she teaches kids to play recorder, and she sits around at home and listens to CDs of like Brahms or whatever, <laughs> and, and that's cool, and she loves it, but I mean, you know, it was quite a kind of like staid, kind of laid back, kind of background sort of thing, mm-hmm. and then suddenly here was this thing that was just in your face, really energetic, and it was loud, and it was just kind of full on, and, and it just kind of, yeah, sort of blew my mind, yeah. I guess. So, um, did she teach you how to play your first instruments? Or uh, how did that um, come along? Uh, yeah, pretty soon after getting into that, I asked my parents if I could get a guitar for Christmas, which they, I got. Like everybody else, I got one of those black and white Strat copies that costs like sixty bucks. My parents um, never bought me one. They bought me a violin instead. Oh really? But right, I'm not a very yeah. good violin player. I had, I, was, I had piano lessons prior to that, but uh, no, I got a guitar, and then there was a there was this kid at my school who had an electric guitar and he let me play that as well so <laughs> i started screwing around uh with that kind of thing um but i mean i don't know it's funny i mean my 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 mum bless her who i love very much um is somebody who's kind of socially quite sort of conservative and the idea i you know i don't think that what she had in mind for her son was for him to grow up and have tattoos and play in a rock and roll band you know and for a long time and until pretty recently you know she was pretty down on what i what i do with my life now she's kind of with it and she's kind of flipped and she's sort of a cheerleader <laughs> for it now which is nice. great we were at a show I, I did a show in Portsmouth which is near where my mum's from um, and uh, she, my mum kind of got hammered and after the show she was stood by the merch table kind of like interrogating people into you know why they like my music and all this kind of thing and at first everyone was like who is this crazy old lady and then when people tweaked that she was my mum they, they ended up like asking for her autograph and stuff so nice. my mum was at the merch table just like signing stuff being like what up buy some t-shirts yeah so that yeah, was a good time other than that it was the re- is the rest of your family supportive too of what you're doing uh yeah um, my sisters are I love my sisters yeah. very dearly um uh yeah yeah i mean yes and no i don't know <laughs> fair enough fair enough um 
So I, I, I mean, um, how did Million Dead came out of that? You found Minor Threat, not Minor Threat. Uh, well, Iron yeah, Maiden in then, into and then yeah, and then Black. Well, Nirvana was kind of a big thing for me. I think the big thing about Nirvana, and I think every well, not everybody, a lot of people have it. What I think of being your punk rock moment, which is that moment. The thing is, I liked Iron Maiden, and I started playing in a band with some friends, and I was into like Pantera and Metallica and that kind of thing, mm-hmm. and we had chord books for far beyond driven and we could sort of just about kind of stumble our way through a song and it sounded appalling and it didn't sound anything like the record <laughs> and then i got in utero and in utero it was like that sounds like us playing in a room except obviously it doesn't in the sense because it's brilliant and we're terrible but just in terms of like that sounds like the drum kit we've got that sounds like the kind of guitar amp i can get and those are chords i can play and it's not kind of fast and fiddly and overproduced and all that kind of thing and it's just that moment when the kind of the technical barriers to music are released and it becomes purely about art essentially and that that to me is a really powerful moment you know and, and i remember going from the the kind of like band we didn't play shows, you know, we just kind of jammed, me and some friends when we were like 13, 14 years old. Mm. And going from doing really appallingly bad versions, half versions of Metallica songs, to playing Nirvana songs was just this like in, intergalactic leap for us because it was like, wow, you know, we can play it from start to finish, don't have to skip any fiddly bits, you know. The solo is just him just making horrible noise anyway, I can do that. <laughs> um, you know, so Nirvana was a big thing. And then I think like a lot of people, I did that thing where you kind of. You know, I remember I, w- I got a Jesus Lizard record because I heard Nirvana talking about Jesus Lizard, so I went out and got that, and I sort of listened to the Pixies because everyone talked about the Pixies in, with regard to Nirvana and Huskadoo. And, and, you know, and you sort of start doing that thing of kind of tracing the thread, you know, um, and then eventually kind of hit on um, Black Flag, and uh, and it was just a big thing for me. Because I'd, I'd kind of sort of figured out punk figured out what punk was generally about and I think I had like a Clash record and a Sex Pistols record and probably like Offspring and Green Day as well um, and maybe No Effects all of which I I liked but it was like there was something about I I was resentful of the idea that I had to kind of have a stupid haircut and safety (laughs) pins in my clothes in order to be into punk and then I remember seeing a picture of Black Flag in a book and it was they just had normal haircuts and normal jeans and t-shirts on but they also looked like they were kill you as soon as look at you <laughs> they were like the most intense people I'd ever seen in my life and I remember thinking I want to know who they are I want to I want to find out who this band is and and uh going out and getting the first four years and being blown away uh were you always a singer yeah I guess and I mean I suppose you could sort of read some amateur psychology <laughs> into this but I just always ended up being the guy with the microphone yeah nice. I mean it's I, I know Part of the thing with me getting guitar wasn't just that I was kind of getting into Iron Maiden and stuff, but it was also because my buddy, who I was getting into it with, had got a drum kit off like his grandmother or something, and he really wanted someone to play with. So he was like, "You have to get a guitar and a microphone because I've got a drum kit." Okay. Um, so, but yeah, I guess I mean, I mean and, and not for any reason of talent for a really long time. Right. I mean, I'm kind of ambivalent about my singing talents now, but certainly back then. Ooh, ooh, daddy! I didn't know how to sing. It, my my favorite stories though, like I I uh, I've been watching a lot of documentaries lately. I just watched the We Jam McConnell line with the Minutemen. Oh yeah, yeah. And like Mike Bach learned how to play bass because that was the only other instrument. And he thought it was a guitar for the longest time. Yeah, yeah. And now look at him; he plays bass like it's a damn guitar. So yeah, yeah. Like, and look at him now. You know, those mm-hmm. those are the best stories. It's almost like it found him. Yeah, like yeah, I was yeah. saying earlier. So yeah. yeah. Um, I, I don't really, I don't know anything about Million Dead, but that's, you know, well, I, I'm sure you've talked that to death. I was, 
I I'll give, can give you the abbreviated version. Yeah, if you want, I was going to yeah. skip it. But. I, I'm, I'm proud of it. I mean, I was in a bunch of other hardcore bands before then. Million Dead was the most sort of coherent one. And, you know, I think we made two great records. I think I'm really proud of them. I think they're... The most important thing for me about Million Dead is that they're unique. When we were around as a band, there was kind of a sort of post-hardcore scene happening in the UK at the time. And we were kind of lumped in with it. And a lot of those bands were our friends, and a lot of them were really great bands. But I always felt at the time that we didn't fit with them and that we weren't part of that whole thing. And looking back now and listening back to those records now, I think I like to think that I was right about that. I think that we'd sound nothing like those other bands around. And I always like those bands. I mean, again, I've mentioned them once already, but one of the things I always loved about Jesus Lizard is that just they absolutely don't fit into anything. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? There's no bands you can put them with or place or time they just kind of stick out of music history like the sore thumb and there's a lot of bands like that and they're, they're the band like Aphex Twin and Electronica just doesn't have anything to do with anyone around him mm -hmm. and I always wanted to be kind of that, that kind of band and I think we were you know and I, I'm proud of those records at the time when that band broke up I was really really pissed off because I felt like we had more to say more shows to play more places to go you know we never toured in the USA you know we, ne we never even went to Germany <laughs> now I think about it but <laughs> Looking back on it now, I sort of slightly feel like it was not a union that was destined to last. Do you know what I mean? Right. And that actually, uh, I mean, I was well. I kind of want to say we got out of there before anybody threw any punches, but that's not strictly true. <laughs> um, but you know, it it kind of, I think we left a good-looking corpse. Nice. Well, it it kind of feels like it was the the metaphor that jumps into mind is the match that lit the cannonball. Or the cannon type yeah. thing that kind of propelled you away. Yeah, I definitely, you know, it's it's funny because, I mean, on the one hand, what I've done since then is, on some levels, very different. You mm -hmm. know, I'm playing the acoustic guitar and it's solo, it's under my name, blah, 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 all that kind of shit. And the influences, well, at least the primary influences are very different. But I think that, um, at the same time, I couldn't have done all the things that I've done since then without having done Million Dead first. It was definitely where I learned how to tour, I learned how to play shows, mm -hmm. you know, all that kind of thing. And And... There are times when I think people think that I'm disowning Million Dead or, or almost kind of want me to, and I, and I won't, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm part of me misses those days, you know? Right. Is the songwriting process, how, how different is that between the two? Very. Um, and actually, this is one of the things, I mean, I think when I first started kind of mucking around with writing songs with an acoustic guitar, um, and just to be sung for a voice on acoustic guitar. I, I was by no means certain that it was going to work or it was going to be something I was going to do for any length of time, but it, you know, I was listening to a lot of stuff like Springsteen's Nebraska and the Johnny Cash American Recording Series and that sort of thing, and I thought I'd give it a try. And I just, you know, I, I think I just kind of like stumbled into my comfort zone almost, you know what I mean? It's yeah. like straight away I was like, great. And it was just a liberating thing because with Million Dead we were rigorously democratic about everything, particularly songwriting, and you know someone would show up with a riff, somebody else would chop it around, somebody else would turn it up on its head, right. then somebody else would say we'd do it three times and someone would say three and a half times and it it was this really kind of like committee process of writing, and and I, and it worked for what it was, you know. I'm not, I'm not knocking it down, but just when it, I think one of the things that was liberating for me is that I'd been in this band that spent ages trying to be difficult and trying to be obtuse and obscure, and then the idea of actually picking up an acoustic guitar and playing a G, a C, and a D, and singing some direct lyrics over mm. it, because again with Million Dead the lyrics were very kind of obscurantist and weird and over the top and. And I was, to a degree, and I can have, throw my hands up now and say I think there was part of me that was trying to prove to the world how deeply intellectual I was, <laughs> and um, and to just to go from all that kind of thing to you know, lyrically being influenced by someone like Towns Van Zant, who just sings a very simple couplet, but it's perfect in its form. Do you know what I mean? And it says something simple and direct, and 
that cuts to the soul and to say that over a G chord and a C chord and a D chord it was actually kind of liberating for me right. and it felt it felt kind of punk to me actually uh, rather than kind of going cool here's another complicated riff with some screechy weirdness over the top it's like I'm going to sing something that approximates a folk song and and it was that was a, a new thing for me and and, and and it took. I, it, I I was nervous about it. <laughs> I, I like that you call it comfortable because that's kind of the impression I get. Like when that, that first time I found it, it was it was something comfortable and familiar and yeah, but good. It was well, it was like buying that new T-shirt and it. It's like this is it fits perfectly <laughs> on me. Yeah, you know? I think one of, one of the things uh, one of my very best friends in the whole world, a guy called Evan, and he when I started doing this stuff and like sort of did my first kind of bedroom demos and I sent him them. And I was, because I was really like, I don't know, am I, have I totally lost my mind? And in fact, quite a lot of my friends told me I had. They were like, you're crazy, what the fuck are you doing? Do something well, else. I'm, I'm sure they're not laughing anymore. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> I win. I was right. But no, but the th- I, one of the, in fact, this is one of the most influential things anybody said to me at that period of time was that Evan, who's somebody who knows me incredibly well, said, these songs sound a lot more like you, the Frank that I know than Million Dead does. This right. sounds like you being you. And and that gave me so much, so much of a kind of confidence boost to carry on because it was like yeah that's kind of how I feel too yeah. and and it was a great feeling great uh, how were those first shows like those first acoustic shows you had played with people surrounding you for so long um, it like it to was, be out there alone it was uh, nerve wracking at times actually um, you know when you're playing in a hardcore band if things go wrong you can roll around on the floor and scream and or blame it on the drummer <laughs> you know um, yeah. neither of which really work when it's just you and the acoustic guitar and the thing is when I first started doing this basically Million Dead uh, we agreed to break up before we actually did so we did like a farewell tour and I had so I had about a month to kind of start getting my shit together so I wrote a bunch of songs learned a bunch of covers started booking solo shows so I went basically straight I, mean, I had about four days off at the end of Million Dead before starting doing this and I basically did this run where I spent 18 months on the road in the UK on the train with a rucksack and a guitar case and sleeping on people's floors and just booking shows kind of four weeks ahead kind of thing and I played house shows and I played in bars and I played in open mic nights and I played um, in warehouses and you know all the rest of it and that was a really kind of um, it was an, an intense learning period and I'm pretty sure that at the beginning of it I wasn't very good at what I was doing but it, I kind of felt like the only way to get good at it was to absolutely just force myself to go out there and just hammer at mm-hmm. it and uh, and I like to think that by the end of it I learned how to kind of entertain a crowd and sing a song and, and write a song what do you what do you think of those those first like demos and records now? Um, I think that uh, they are cute is probably the word <laughs> that I would use. I mean, I, I like don't that. I don't think they're bad songs as such. I mean, I can definitely sort of hear myself in them, kind of finding my way around certain ideas. And and you know, I don't I, I never want to do them down because I know that there are people out there for whom that's their favorite stuff that I've done and all the rest of it. And I and I that's fine, whatever. It's it's not it's really none of my business what people think about the music that I make do you know what I mean it, yeah. it's not for me to try and correct anyone's opinion of it but um, but it's just it kind of it feels kind of there's a kind of charming naivety to it at times but uh, I mean there's one or two songs that I also think is shit you know, <laughs> and that I don't play anymore and I'm glad I don't have to play them anymore but uh, there's, there's some cool stuff in there great cool uh, so how is uh, you know it seems the cannonball metaphor is now turning into a rocket ship metaphor, but it kind of took off out of kind of nowhere. How has how how that been? Um, well, it's kind of the thing um, for me 
one of the things I'm really happy about in my career is that I think, you know, you read kind of um, rock and roll biographies, which I do quite a lot, and a lot of bands, it's like there was that one morning when they got that phone call, yeah. when everything went apeshit, you know, or that one deal they signed, or that one tour they did, or whatever. And there isn't, I can't personally put my finger on anything like that for me. It's just been baby steps every step of the mm -hmm. way, just a lot of them. And, and, and it's just, it's been fantastic, yeah. you know, and, 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 I, that's that's the that's the best way to go because I think that it means that things have kind of spread word of mouth, you know, and all that mm -hmm. kind of thing. And it's just, yeah, or, I don't know, you know, somebody accidentally finding it on iTunes, right? Exactly, you know. And I think, and I mean, obviously there've been tours I've done on which we've made a lot of friends, and signing a deal with Epitaph was important, and touring with Social D over here has made a big difference, and all the rest of it. But it's just, it's like when we did the Social D tour, the first Social D tour over here, for example, it wasn't like we were going from having done nothing in America to suddenly playing a thousand people. Right. It just kind of felt like we were playing to a few more people than last time. And then yeah. the next time we did Helen shows, there were a few more people, and just little kind of incremental little bits and bobs. And 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 I'm kind of proud of that. Yeah. Anyway. Well, I, I remember this last Dimmer show I saw you at. You were like, the last time I was here, there were 50 people, and now it's sold out. Yay. Yeah. That like, was, that's got to be incredible. That was, yeah, that was a big thing, and it's <laughs> such a bummer. I had a bad throat that day. Oh, it was, it was still uh, a good show. That, yeah, that was a fine, fine show. Man, that, that was some... Uh, that was some crazy crowd, actually, yeah. from from you guys. I, I know it, Andrew Jackson Jihad is super popular in Colorado. Mm -hmm. So at the time, I was like, this is a brilliant booking because it's two completely different crowds in one place for yeah. similar similar stuff. I loved it. It was a great yeah. show. I'd never seen them before, and they blew me away. I bought oh, all their they're, records. I, I love that band. Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, so 15-year-old Frank Turner, what did he want to be when he grew up? A musician. Uh, I think I probably wanted when I was 15 I probably wanted to be in the pinnacle of my ambition would probably have been to be in like Pennywise nice do you know what I mean or yeah oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, you know they used to, well there is it's still there but they've completely redone it and it's not the same yeah. there was a venue in London called The Garage and I used to go there like three night like Friday, Saturday, Sunday night every weekend and see yeah. punk that was the only venue for punk shows in London basically and uh, I saw and it's really funny because now I keep meeting people who I saw like uh, two days ago I met Chris from Lagwagon and uh, I was like dude I saw you so many times yeah. in the late 90s and, and we laughed about it and it's funny because he'd come to see my show and yeah. that's a strange strange flip I, by the universe right there I I 15-year-old me wanted to... I couldn't play music very well. Like, I played the violin very badly. I always wanted to be a journalist, and then I got away from that. I started mm -hmm. booking shows and being the behind-the-scenes mm -hmm. guy because you couldn't make money in journalism, and here I am doing it again. And I'm happier than ever, yeah. uh, um, honestly. And uh, But, like, tour managing, like, with Drag the River and mm -hmm. Two Cow Garage and those guys, like, I've met, in booking shows, I've met so many of my heroes and just, like, Kevin Seconds, having Kevin Seconds call me on the phone yeah, or, yeah. like, Chad Price's... I've slept in the same bed with Chad Price from All, and I've st slept at Stephen Egerton from The Descendants' House. It, I, I understand yeah. completely where yeah. you're coming it's, from. It's, it's just like, a strange thing. What? And you, and, and you, yeah, and you want to put a you don't, you don't. On the, on the one hand, you don't want to be kind of star fucky about it, but at the same time, you don't want to be too fucking cool about it either because yeah. it, it is cool. Yeah. You know, these are the people who were the kind of giants of our of our adolescence, yeah. and and it's fucking cool yeah. being friends with them. Y usually, after about ten beers, I have a have a habit of uh, spilling my guts to them. Yeah, 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 I know, I hear that. <laughs> but hopefully they're at that point, too, so. <laughs> um, so, uh, let's see. Um, would you say when you write your songs, do you set out for a theme, or where, do, where what is your songwriting process? Um, I don't really know, and I'm trying to keep it that way. Okay. Um, songs just kind of arrive, and I don't really, 
quite, I quite often feel like a sleepwalker who's just woken up surrounded by dead bodies <laughs> and holding a bloody knife or something. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And it's like the process is really not particularly clear to me. And, and But it's working, do you know what I mean? Right, and yeah. I, what I don't want to do is do that thing, which I think a lot of bands do, which is they start trying to second-guess themselves. Do you know what I mean? It's like, mm -hmm. well, our first record or our second record was really popular. Let's try and, you know, divinate why it was popular and then try and replicate that or whatever. And suddenly it just loses its soul kind of yeah. thing. And all I ever really wanted to do was just play kind of simple, cool songs about yeah. stuff I like, and, and so I try and keep doing that. Yeah. The, the, the songs I always really liked are... And there, there are several of them throughout the course of them are the ones about you know um not giving up your youth and you know not giving into like a soul-sucking job and whatnot yeah, and yeah. those are the ones i've always yeah. it's funny like, because I, I kind of i don't i don't ever really want to be like a, a sort of somebody telling anybody else what to do with their life do you no, know what i mean, I mean and, uh, but but it, I, don't, I don't think of my songs as having an overriding philosophy but actually that's possibly bullshit and maybe <laughs> so, <who laughs> i don't know they seem like they're and maybe that's why they're so personal is they seem like they're anthems from you for you. Yeah, maybe. I definitely I definitely think that the one definition of selling out that makes any sense is, is selling out is writing songs for somebody other than yourself. Yeah. That's all it really is. And uh, and that whether that's your girlfriend or your record company or radio play or whatever it is, that's all that selling out actually means. Yeah. Um, you talk about in one song, and, and it, this is one I understand very well. I've talked to a bunch of guys about like kind of this addiction to this lifestyle we're in different show different town yeah, different yeah. night and you talk about you know love versus the music and you know i'm paraphrasing of course but um you know are you addicted to this lifestyle here yeah i mean i'm i'm wary of using the word addicted just because it makes it right. sound like it's it's a problem yeah you know what i mean and yeah. uh, but, but for some people it is yeah i guess i mean for me it's just the, the way i like to think about it is is that this is my trade this is the thing that i know how to do yeah and I know how to do it well, and I, I hope that doesn't come across as an arrogant statement, but it's like, <laughs> I know I know how to tour, I know how to play shows, I know how to understand the crowd. Um, I've spent years and years and years training myself to get to this point, and now it's my trade, and I want to keep doing it until I'm old. And uh, and it's kind of, and yeah, of course, yeah, you know, but it, I mean, it's funny, because on the one hand, it's like, you know, people talk about tour being a liberating mode of existence. At the same time, I actually think it's a, it's a very structured and regulated type of existence because every day you get up, you do load in, you do press, you do show, sound check, whatever. Do you know what I mean? And and mm -hmm. I actually, to be honest, I find it hard not being on tour these days because my when the when the parameters are removed, I generally that's when I kind of go crazy and start mm -hmm. drinking too much and kind of screwing my personal life up <laughs> and whatever it might be. And there's something about the kind of the discipline of tour that I that I actually really enjoy. I've, I've slowed down my drinking excessively from pretty much every day to one one day a week. Mm -hmm. And the days I'm not drinking, if I'm not busy, I don't know what the hell to do with myself. So I, I kind of, th when I think about that, it reminds me of that tour lifestyle. It's like, yeah, yeah. let's go, let's get up, let's go. Yeah, yeah. Let's do something. Uh, I'm almost done. I'll let you uh, go here in a second. Um, do you see yourself living in Europe forever, in England? Well, you know, I mean, I actually technically don't have a place, so, I mean, it's slightly academic talking about that right now. I definitely want to move to the USA at some point. I'm a massive, massive fan of America, kind of conceptually. My politics are probably best described as being the founding fathers, do you know what I mean? Ben mm -hmm. Franklin, Thomas Jefferson. And um, without now getting into a massive discussion about politics, <laughs> you know, I come from a country that has a very heavy dosage of social democracy, and some people like that and very proud of that and they are welcome to it it's not to my taste and I would like to live in a place where that was not the case I'd like to I've been thinking about moving to sort of I don't know Wyoming and Montana 
maybe Texas actually. Nice. I just I'd like to live somewhere where I get left alone a lot more than I do in the UK. Basically, yeah. that's sort of one of my ambitions. But at the same time, it's funny. I kind of, you know, recently I was looking into kind of like maybe buying a flat in London because, you know, I, I do okay out of what I do, and I, I had the money to start talking about that. And then, and I got kind of far down the line with it, and then suddenly it kind of had one of those things where I woke up in the middle of the night and went, what the fuck am I doing? Like, I just have no interest in owning, of having a a base right now. It's, fuck that, you know? It's just not what I want to do with my life right now. Um, So I kind of put a break on the whole thing. Yeah, I get it. It, um, Yeah, so what's what's next for Frank Turner? Um, uh, Unfortunately, 2012 doesn't have enough months in it, which is starting to irritate me right now (laughs) because there's a lot of stuff I want to do and not enough time to do it. Um, I'm going to be recording a new album this year to release next year I've also got a hardcore side project on the go um, that is just kind of noisy tongue in cheek this is now the third time that we mentioned this interview this is getting on the top right. Jesus Lizardy kind of stuff yeah. kind of, or maybe like hot, sort of hot snakes Jesus Lizard type of stuff but, but definitely kind of lyrically quite kind of sick and weird but humorous as well sure. um, and then a friend of mine is an electronic artist and asked me to write some lyrics for him so I'm doing that too and I'm sort of slowly working towards finishing a book of tour diaries as well Nice. so I, I'm somebody who gets bored quite easily mm-hmm. and I like to keep busy so yeah. I'm going to keep busy I, I did want to know, like, and obviously you do miss the more energetic. Yeah, this part. Loud I, I think stuff. the thing about it is, is that there's an, there's enough of my soul that's kind of misses that to sustain a side project, yeah. but I, I can, couldn't do it full time. Right. Anymore. Yeah. I, I think, think you have to be pissed off in a certain way to make hardcore bands work. Right. And you're too old for that now, right? Yeah. You it just turned mean, thirty, it right? It doesn't mean that. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't mean I'm not pissed off, but it's a certain brand of anger mm-hmm. that you need in order to sustain. A hardcore band is and it? and there is nothing worse in this world than 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 uh, unangry not inappropriately angry hardcore bands do you know what I mean right, like kind right. of like just a sort of tired old man going brruh, brruh, brruh. it's just yeah. like ah oh, piss off I will, I, I will say I still have a great affinity for sick of it all and those guys are oh, old yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but yeah it's still good dude they like oh my guys. god they were many dead <laughs> were lucky enough to tour with those guys a few mm. times and they were they were like a fucking master class yeah. do you know what I mean I remember Standing on the side of the stage and going, man, we're not good enough as a band. <laughs> do you know what I mean? We just yeah. we are not good enough at what we do. Yeah. So tell me about Wembley, and I'll let you go. Wembley. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's a funny one. Uh, it seems very surreal and strange to me booking a place that size. It's twelve thousand mm-hmm. tickets, you know, and that's that's many people. And um, uh, it's yeah, it's strange. But uh, I guess in the end, the reason we decided to book the show is because we can right now. Yeah. And you know, maybe I'll never be at this point in my life again. So, may, you know, I just sort of thought, fuck it, why, you know, let's try it, let's see what happens. Maybe I'll do it and I'll decide I hate arena shows and I'll never ever play anything like that again. And maybe I'll do it and decide I love it. And then, and then also, maybe we'll, maybe my career will, that will be the peak and it'll tank thereafter, <laughs> and maybe it won't, who knows. But it's just, I just feel like, you know, you should try everything once. Like that fuck it, why not kind of attitude. Yeah, you know. Let's do it. Are you nervous? Scared? Frightened? Uh, a little. <laughs> I wasn't too bad and then I went there the other day and it's fucking enormous. Like vast, but um, but no, I think you know my band and my crew and uh, are exceptionally good at what they do, and uh, I think we'll pull it off. Great, I can't wait. Hopefully, you, hopefully, maybe you'll be the next Bruce Springsteen. I don't know. Who knows? Let's hope so. That'll be nice. But if not, I'm still be perfectly content with my life. All right, man. Uh, Sweet. That's all I got for you, Frank. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. All right, guys. That was me hanging out with Mr. Frank Turner in Albuquerque, New Mexico. 
in his uh, fabulous tour bus while he's on tour with uh, Social Distortion. Uh, Frank's still got a couple weeks left with Social D before he heads back to Europe for his Wembley show. Uh, make sure you check out frank-turner.com for all his current tour dates. Um, he's got a new... Man, that guy, as you heard, he's got his fucking hands in everything. He's got a ton of stuff coming up. Uh, make sure you check him out and follow him. As I say... I'm a big fan. I'm very happy that he sat down and talked with us today. Uh, he was very, very busy, and he still took time out to sit down and do this. And Frank is a uh, press professional. Like, this guy, I, you know he has to do at least 200 interviews a year, if not more. And still, thank you for sitting down with me. And a special thanks to Mr. Casey Crest, tour manager extraordinaire, for setting up this uh, wonderful little interview. Uh, Casey, of course, is tour manager for Lagwagon, uh, occasionally Hot Water Music, uh, Frank Turner, uh, Chuck Reagan. Wonderful, wonderful guy. If you're a booking agent, uh, manager, whatnot, he is a dream to work with, and I can't recommend him highly enough. Uh, if you're a very, very wealthy band and want to take him out on tour, I'm sure you should. I'd uh, love to do the death. Or you can take me out on tour. I am a uh, wonderful tour manager myself. I've gone out with Dragged River, Two Cow, Garage, Michael Dean Damron, a handful of other bands. So enough about me, though. Uh, but thanks again for listening to the Most Harmless Podcast. If you're a new listener, I highly recommend you uh, go back and check out. My favorite episode, of course, is the one with Michael Schnabel from Two Cow Garage. Uh, me and him get pretty drunk and talk about life and death and uh, what went into going into his newest record. I've got that Chuck Reagan episode, it's the pilot episode, and it kind of talks about why I started this thing. And I talked with Chuck for a few minutes about the newest Hot Water Music record and his early beginnings in uh, Louisiana. And we got a whole bunch of other stuff coming up. Next week, we have uh, Arliss Nancy, Suburban Home Records' newest uh, signing artist. Uh, and honestly, like they've put out probably my favorite record so far this year, and that includes Micah Schnabel. And as much as I love Micah Schnabel's newest record, I think... I think the artless Nancy one's a little bit better. So, uh, like I say, we got T-shirts in the uh, Most of Harmless Podcast store at mostofharmlesspodcast.com. Uh, all proceeds of that go to me drinking more beer and traveling to more remote locations like Albuquerque, New Mexico. Again, thanks for uh, giving this a listen if this is your first time. Thanks for listening to me ramble this far. A little, Normally it's a little bit more coherent, but as I say, I've been drinking all weekend long, and this is what happens when we do that. And plus, I mean, this isn't professional radio. This is just me talking into a microphone in my living room. And uh, hey, this is the spirit of the show. It's DIY punk rock all the way, baby. Uh, so we're going to end this episode with another Frank Turner tune. Uh, this one... It's got a guest star from my little buddy, Mr. John Snodgrass, Dragged the River. Uh, this was recorded, well, the song was written in Little Rock, Arkansas, when the Revival Tour hit Little Rock, and I believe the number is 17. Only 17 people showed up to see the Revival Tour in Little Rock, Arkansas, and John Snodgrass and Frank Turner, uh, they met, they became pals, and they wrote a record called Buddies, inspired because of this song. Uh, this is a song off that record, Buddies, and it's based on the Albuquerque, uh, no, I'm sorry, that Little Rock show. Uh, this was called Big Rock and Little Rock. And uh, please check out MostlyHarmlessPodcast.com. Please subscribe on iTunes. Please write us some reviews, send me emails, nudie pictures, free stuff, yada, yada, yada. Thanks for listening. This is uh, Big Rock and Little Rock by Frank Turner and John Snodgrass. Bye, guys. Man, remember that night after the Super Bowl? <laughs> when, uh, the night when we were in Arkansas? Yeah. <clears throat> that was a fun night. That was a fun night. And we really did not watch the Super Bowl that night. Well, <laughs> no, we watched it again. Really? We taped it. 
I was pretty drunk, it's yeah. got to be said. But that was a good show. Was In fact, it was one of my favourite shows on that tour, even though it wasn't a full house. It doesn't matter. It was a good time. You know places. what? It should never matter whether it's a full house or not. I mean, it's nice to have one, but that's kind of not really what this whole job's about, you know? I mean, what happened was, it was a Thursday night in fall, in a bar in Arkansas, a long, long way from home, somewhere I'd not been before. We'd been out on the road for a while With Chuck, John and Jim We were hoping for the best man We only had 20 people in We made Big Rock In Little Rock We did the best that we could Oh, in Little Rock We made Big Rock We did pretty good Well, John Good said the nights like tonight will show the true worth of a man. If you're doing things for the right reasons, you still do the best that you can. I'm playing a little show for 20 people who really care. It's better than playing for a thousand who aren't sure why that there we make Big Rock in Little Rock. We did the best that we could. was wrapping up the cables and they were loading up the car the bar stools were on the tables shift drinking from a jar they've said we needed a bridge we built a major fucking bridge That's how it went down. That is how it went down.